Rightly Dividing, Episode 2. Welcome back. I'm Preacher Shane. I'm glad to have you with us along with this journey on our podcast, Rightly Dividing. You know, in the news here recently, there's been lots of talk in Christian circles about certain preachers and their views on women in the ministry and what they think the women's roles in Christianity should be. But yet we fail to look and see what the Scripture has to say about it. I preached a sermon a few years back on Jesus and his views of women and their place in the ministry. And what I'll do is add that to this podcast so you can listen to it. So let's see what Jesus has to say about women and his views on women in the ministry. familiar story that we had looked at some last Sunday evening. We've been looking at, going through, looking at in our study the Jesus of the Bible and the fact that he is quite different than uh, contemporary American Christianity portrays him um, a lot of times. And so we're, we're looking at the Lord of the Bible, and we're looking at uh, the culture in uh, which he was in when he was here on earth. We're looking at the mindset. We're looking at um, who he was and what he did. And we've reached the point, we've looked at the twelve that he called unto him, the twelve apostles, and now we're looking further at uh, the larger group of disciples he began to gather around himself. And last week we arrived at the point where we are looking at the Lord's view of women and the Lord's view of women in ministry and in service. And it's quite different from uh, the mindset of the Jews during that day and that time. Uh, Last week we, we... kind of went through the points, the fact that women were considered second-class citizens. They were looked down upon. They were considered um, property. In many of the uh, men's eyes that day, they were uh, regarded as inferior to men. According to the Talmud, they were... um, 100 women were equal to two men. And the Jewish males would pray on a daily basis their prayer of thanksgiving, and it ended this way. Praise be to God who has not made me a non-Jew. Praise be to God who has not made me an ignorant person. And praise be to God who has not made me a woman. So that was their, uh, that, you know, that gives us their mindset during first century uh, when, when Christ was here and uh, in the early, early portions of the church foundation. We see that mindset. 
And here we have in Luke 10 a very familiar story. Uh, as we saw last week, it was one that we've heard preached from many times. I've heard many different sermons preached from this. And most of them are preached from the standpoint of those that are doing a lot of work uh, and those that are prone to worship. And I've, I've seen it used for those that, that uh, to rebuke those that feel like they're, they're doing everything and everyone else is not doing anything but sitting around. And I've seen it from those different standpoints. But I want us to look closer at the story uh, again tonight. <coughs> Verse 38, the Bible says, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. As we began looking at this last week, we talked about the fact that how the Jews viewed women during this time and the fact that they were inferior. But then something happened. The Lord came along. And in Christ, rather than finding man's view of woman, we find God's view of woman because Christ is God incarnate. He, he is all that encompasses God the Father in God the Son in the flesh. And so his views, his ideas, his opinions, if you will, his thoughts, his actions, his manners are God's. And so Christ was made flesh and He embodies all that entails the characteristics of God the Father. And in His earthly life, He was a visible expression of God Himself. He told His disciples, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. So He comes along and His views just like everything else that he did when he was here on earth, turned the religious mindset upside down. The same with his views on women. His views, um, his actions, his words show us his thoughts toward women. And that view, as we said, was completely contrary to what the first century Jews, uh, how they viewed women. When God, think about this, when God decided to break into time present 
and to make His presence known here on earth, how did He choose to come forth? I mean, He's God. He could have just poofed Himself here. But yet, He chose to make His entrance on this planet first by visiting a woman in the form of the Holy Ghost and then by... Uh, by entering into the womb of a woman and being delivered by a woman. So his, his first actions uh, to come forth, he, when he decided to make his interest, entrance upon the earth, he visited a woman, chose a woman to bring forth himself as his eternal son, the anointed one. So this, the life of God was first placed in the womb of a woman before he got to us. And God wasn't ashamed. Then as he ministered to those around him hurting, he broke down all the barriers, all of the social conventions that were pitted against the outcast, the downtrodden, that were pitted against women. And on one occasion, he rose to the defense of a woman. We saw in Sunday school this morning the fact that he came to the defense of a woman that they brought into the temple and in, there was caught in the act of adultery and asked the Lord, they said, the law says that this woman is to be stoned to death. Those that are caught in the act of adultery are to be stoned to death. What do you say? The Bible tells us Jesus stooped down began to write on the ground. We have no idea what he wrote. I've heard Multiple sermons on what he wrote. A lot of them are good. Some of them not so good. Um, but the fact is, God's Word does not tell us what he wrote. We know he wrote with his finger. In the sand. There's only one other recorded instance in the Scripture where God writes something with his finger and Moses brought it down off the mountain. So, we don't know what the Lord wrote, but I'm, I'm assuming he, he wrote on two occasions that day. He began to stoop down and write. He ignored what the, the group that had brought the woman said. And then they kept on. And he wrote down and he stooped down and wrote again. And then the group that was there that was ready to stone this woman began to drop their stones. And as he looked up, there was none there. He said, woman, where are thine accusers? And he said, they're gone. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So he, he came to the defense of a woman which was unheard of in Jewish culture. And we don't know what he wrote, but I know that the Jewish law required that both parties 
the story, they only brought the woman. So, they are guilty of breaking the law just as she was guilty of breaking the law. So he comes to this woman's defense. This woman caught in adultery. He became her attorney and saved her life. He wasn't ashamed. He was known for hanging out with the less desirable crowd. He was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber for hanging out. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. In one of the Gospels, we have the account that he made it a point in John's Gospel to go through Samaria for one particular woman who would be at a well that afternoon when no one else was around. And he did something that shocked everyone around him. He was seen in public talking to a woman. The Jews, the Jewish males would not, it was considered a shame for them to be seen talking to a woman in public. And there he was talking to a woman and not just any woman but a woman that had been divorced. Not just a woman that had been divorced but a woman that had been divorced five times. And not just any woman that had been divorced five times but a woman that had been divorced five times and was now living in an adulterous relationship. He said, go and bring your husband. Go get your husband bring him back here. She said, I don't have a husband. The Lord said, "I have rightly said, you don't have you have you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one that you're with right now is not your husband. So if he's not her husband, he's somebody else's. So she's living in an adulterous relationship. So he's talking with this divorced woman that had been divorced five times, and is now living in an adulterous relationship." And then worse than that, she was not a Jew. She, was, she wasn't even a Gentile. She was what they considered worse than the Gentile. She was a Samaritan, which was half Jew and half Gentile. And he talked with her in the middle of the day, in broad daylight, in the open, unashamed. The Lord had a custom we saw last week of using women in his parables. The parable of the lost coin. When the woman loses the coin, she lights a candle and sweeps diligently until she finds it and then calls her friends and says, Rejoice, for what was lost is now found. And then he said, I'll tell you that there, are, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one lost sinner that comes to repentance. And that story... Parable is an earthly story to convey a heavenly truth. And that story shows the pictures and types. The coin is the lost uh, soul. The, uh, the broom is the Holy Spirit as it sweeps to find. And the woman is a picture and a type of God Himself as He is looking for the lost sinner. It says there is present, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Now I want you to think about that statement for just a minute and understand 
what that means, the presence of the angels. Alright? In the, uh, the vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated upon His throne in the temple. And His train filled the temple and the smoke and His voice. And when He spoke, the, everything shook and the pillars of the temple shook. And He saw the seraphim flying around crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And with six wings, it said, with two He covered His uh, face, with two He covered His feet. And with two he flew around crying, Holy, 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 in the presence of God. So when Jesus gives the parable and talks about there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one that comes to repentance, who is in the presence of the angels? God. So there is rejoicing with God over one lost sinner that comes to repentance. And Jesus uses women in His parables to bring forth many of these truths. And He makes them uh, the, the heroines of the story. He talked about the woman that searched for a lost coin. He, he talked about the woman that continually went before the king asking that she be justified. Uh, and the king finally said, She's not going to leave me alone until we do something about this. And then he uses the story uh, after preaching. He uses the story as he looks up one day and sees a widow casting her last two mites into the treasury there at the temple. And as we've said, we've heard, and I think I've preached here before, how that portion of Scripture is used on how we should give. That portion of Scripture has nothing to do with how we as Christians are to give, but it has to do with the Lord condemning a group of people that their religious system had come to the point where it was willing to take the last two cents from a woman and allow her to go home and die in poverty. Because all of the, the Scripture that's before that and a great portion of the Scripture after that is the Lord condemning. He says, beware of the Pharisees who are coming in and taking everything from with us. And then he says, here's a perfect example. Look at what's taking place right here. This is the perfect example of what I'm warning you about. This religious system and he uses this woman as an example. One day he's dining with the Pharisee and in walks a woman of ill repute and begins to wash his feet and pour an expensive perfume over the Lord's feet. She took down her hair and used her hair to dry his feet this woman that was considered unclean by the religious system was in there. She wept and washed his feet with her tears, dried his feet with her hair. And in all that were watching, in their mind, this was a very scandalous act. It was improper and it mortified those that watched it happen. 
And at that moment, the religious leader lost his respect for the Lord. He said, he don't even know who this woman is. How can this man be a prophet? He, if he knew who this woman was, there was no way he would let her in this house and do this to him. Wouldn't allow him to touch. But Jesus, without shame, allowed her to do what she did. Without shame, Jesus allowed a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years who was considered unclean by the religious system. She could not even have contact with her family because of her standing of being unclean. For 12 years, she could not have any intimate contact with her family. And the Lord allowed her to touch the hem of His garment. And he praised her for it. And then as he went toe-to-toe with a woman that said, Lord, heal my daughter. And the Lord said, it's not fit to cast meat to the dogs. And she said, yeah, Lord, but they are allowed to sit under the table and eat crumbs from the master's table. Not only did he go toe-to-toe and head-to-head with this woman as an equal, but he praised her for her faith. Gave her one of the highest praises that he gives in all the Bible. That He had not seen a greater faith than all of Israel. And then we get to our portion of Scripture here in Luke chapter 10. The final hours, the final days of the Lord's life, He decides to spend it here with this family in Bethany. Some of His favorite people in His favorite place. And it was here where He would spend His last days before giving up His life on Calvary. In Bethany there were two women and one man that Jesus loved, Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. They were his friends. They received him into their house. And he was not ashamed. Now, as I said, there's an important thing taking place here in this story that I think is often overlooked when sermons are preached from this. He said, usually this story is preached under the guise that there's a tension that exists between those that are given to outward service and those that are given to inward worship. And, you know, that has some merit to it. Paul says that all Scripture is given uh, and that all that's written is written for our learning. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so this is profitable for, for doctrine and instruction, but I think there's a deeper lesson and a deeper message here that we have to go below what we see on the surface. 
We need to understand the, the historical background. As we said, women were looked on as second class, inferior. And in the homes, uh, and from what we can gather, Martha and Mary and Lazarus had some money. They were not destitute. They were not poverty stricken because their home had a room large enough to accommodate this large group that was there. Lazarus was also buried in a tomb with a round stone which signified money. So the Joseph of Arimathea that allowed the Lord to be buried in his tomb was also uh, of um, a man of means. They were not necessarily the richest folks around, but they were comfortable. They were well off compared to a lot of others in that day and time. So not all that followed and were uh, in the group that followed the Lord, a lot of people get in their mind that if you choose to follow the Lord, especially in the first century, you gave up everything and you had nothing. But that's not the case, as we see when we actually look at what the Scripture has to say. And um, in their homes in that day, they had separate areas for the men and for the women. And this great room was the men's space. And the kitchen was the women's space. And uh, that still we see that in a lot of cultures today. That, that it's still looked upon that way. And the women did not go into the men's space and the men did not go into the women's space. The public room was for men. And for a woman to go in and sat down in this public room of this house with a group of men was considered a very big no-no. You did not do that. Women did not do that. The only two places that men and women were ever together in a home setting were in the marital bedroom and in the area outside the house where the children played and they were together as a family. And that was the two places that men and women were together in the home. Other than that, they had their own separate spaces. So Martha escorted Jesus in. And uh, the twelve into the public room, into the space for men. Now Jesus, it doesn't have anywhere in the Scripture where He asked for anything to eat. His goal was to teach. So He began teaching. While He's teaching, Martha runs into the kitchen. She wants to make the Lord feel welcome. She wants to make His disciples feel welcome. And she begins preparing a meal. She wants it to be special for Him. And so she's preparing the meal. But there's something wrong with this picture. There's another person in the room with the men. 
that's not supposed to be there. And she's in the place of a disciple at the feet of Jesus, being taught by him. That's another thing you need to understand about the culture. Women did not receive an education. They were not considered worthy of getting an education in first century Judaism. And so Mary's seated at the feet of Jesus. Mary had broken two social no-nos. First, she was in the men's space. And second, she was seated in the position of a disciple, of one learning, of one being educated. Now why is that significant? Because every other religious leader and teacher in that day and time would not have allowed that to happen. Now, back in the kitchen. Martha's in there. And she's working. And she's preparing this large meal. And she's slaving over a hot stove. And she wants everything to be special. She's getting the plates out. She's getting the silverware out. She's getting the best china out. And she's getting everything ready. And she wants it to be perfect. But as, as she's working, and she's looking around, she's like, well, where's Mary? Where'd Mary go? Her sister's not helping. And she looks and she's out there in the room with the men. And Martha gets mad. But she's not mad because Mary's not helping. She's mad because Mary is in there Acting like a man. And Martha continued to work. She's hoping Mary would get up and get, come in there to help her. And finally she couldn't take it any, any longer. And Martha then goes and breaks a social no-no. And she goes into the room where the men are. And she confronts the Lord. And she says, Lord, don't you care? Tell her to get in here and help me. Tell her to get in here in the woman's place. She said, my sister's sitting in this public room acting like a man when she should be in the kitchen helping me. Now, notice something. In the middle of all this, Mary was silent. She didn't try to defend herself. She allowed the Lord to defend her. And the Lord's response to Martha was, as we see, a tender response. Jesus answered and said unto her, verse 41, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. 
But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. So he was very tender. He used her name twice. When the Lord is dealing with folks on an intimate level, we see that over and over again. He uses the name twice with Abram when he's about to plunge the knife into Isaac. It's Abram, Abram. Abraham, Abraham. And, um, you know, with, with Peter, Simon, Simon. With Saul, it's Saul, Saul. So when the Lord is wanting to get in close and personal uh, with those that He's dealing with, we see this repetition of the name recorded in Scripture. And He says that... Um, Said that, you know, you're, you're worried. You're cumbered about by, you're troubled by a lot of things. You've got a lot going on. A lot of irons in the fire. And Mary's concerned with one thing, the needful thing. Verse 42, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And uh, this is, is a reference um, there are, are several places in the scripture where the Lord is referred to as our portion especially in the Psalms David refers to the Lord as our portion, as our lot as our good part and he's, he's telling Martha that what Mary has chosen to do here um was to choose Him. But Martha still becomes an important figure and uh, that her, uh, her comment to the Lord after her brother dies, you know, Thou art the Christ. You know, the Son of God. It, it's almost exactly matches what Peter's confession is. When Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we see the Lord's view of women was, was completely opposite of what the Jewish uh, leaders of that day and how they viewed women. And the Lord gathered other women disciples as He ministered to those and Luke writes about that. A lot of times he refers to the the twelve male disciples as the twelve, and then he refers to the group of women that were there that were around the Lord as the women. And you'll see that through the writings of Luke. And uh, we notice. There, as we said, that his disciples were not destitute. They were not poverty-stricken. They were not uh, beggars. And that the Lord had financial backing from those that supported his ministry. And many of them were women. Um, in fact, some of them had uh, sufficient funding not 
One in particular, the woman that had the alabaster box, caused Judas to say, Lord, why didn't she sell this and give the money to the poor? And we know that it wasn't because he cared for the poor, but because he kept the money sack. And that, uh, the value of that that she had was of great value. So that there was many that followed the Lord that had sufficient funding in order to help out with the ministry. Now the twelve, the men, lived with Jesus for three and a half years. They followed Him everywhere. But Jesus also had this group of female disciples that we, as we saw, said Luke says the women. And they were also His disciples. And they were the female counterpart to the twelve. And the women followed the Lord as well where He went. And they tended to His needs and He was not ashamed of that. Now, when you stop and think about it and look at the twelve and the women, you can see some things about the women um, that speak very highly of them and of their character. When Jesus was taken into custody and was taken to the court and um, was about to die, the twelve fled. All but one. They checked out. All the disciples except for John said, we'll see you later. And they scattered. But the women stayed. They didn't leave. They followed him up Calvary. They were there uh, to do what they had been doing the whole time they were with Him, comforting Him, ministering to Him, taking care of His needs. And they watched Him as He was crucified. They were present at the crucifixion. They were watching it happen. They watched it take place the entire Six hours that he was on the cross, they watched it. To watch a person die is awful in and of itself. To watch someone that you're close to die and take their last breath is very heartbreaking. But then to watch someone die at the hand of another in such a cruel way goes against every fiber of anyone's being. But these women did not leave. They stayed the entire time. And they were close enough to experience it. They were close enough to see the blood to see the sweat, to see the tears, 
They were close enough for Jesus to talk to them, to tell John, Behold thy mother, and told, told the Mary to behold thy son. They were there at the foot of the cross as the blood, the sweat, and the tears drained from his body. Yet, he was not ashamed. Following his death, it was first the women that arrived at the grave. After his death, they were still following him. They were still wanting to minister him to him. They were still wanting to take care of the body of their Lord. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the first faces that He met were the faces of the women. The first eyes that saw Him belonged to the women, not the twelve. And it was to the women that He gave the privilege of announcing His resurrection. Who was the first one to proclaim the good news of the Lord's resurrection? The women. And even though according to Jewish law their testimony wouldn't hold up in a court, later on the day of the Pentecost, these women were also present in the upper room along with the twelve waiting for Jesus to return. Unlike the male disciples, the women disciples never left. They followed Him to the end. Their passion for the Lord and their dedication to His service outshined the men. And God was not ashamed. Throughout the Lord's life, it was the women that tended to His physical needs. It was the women that looked after Him. It was the women that funded his ministry for the most part. It was the women that cared for him up until the end. It was the women that were indispensable. and He was not ashamed. While the twelve and the women were part of the Lord's inner circle, Jesus also had a larger band. As we saw, there was the one whom Jesus loved, John. Then there was the three, Peter, James, and John, that the Lord had with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, that the Lord had with him when he was in and raised Jairus' daughter. It was also those three that laughed him to scorn. The Bible said when he said, Jairus' daughter is not dead, she's asleep. Because they, the Bible tells us he had sent everyone else out, but those three and her parents. And then he said, she's not dead, she's asleep. He says they laughed him to scorn. So it's, it's those three and the, and the girl's parents that are there. And so he had that John, then he had the three, Peter, James, and John, then the twelve, then the twelve and the women, and then a broader spectrum we see as he brings in the seventy. And he sends them out and commissioned the 70 
to go on a mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Have you ever wondered why it was 70? Why the Lord mentioned, why the Scripture tells us 70? Things are in the Bible for a reason. And there are reasons for things in the Bible. The ancient Jews believed that there was a certain number of nations on the earth. They believed there were 70 nations on the earth. And the 70 disciples possibly could represent the fact that the message of Jesus would eventually go out to all nations. Here he's sending them out to the lost sheep of Israel, but one day he's going to send them to the uttermost part of the earth, to all nations, to proclaim the gospel. In the Old Testament, Moses appointed 70 leaders to help lead Israel. As the Lord is a prophet raised like unto Moses, we see him choosing out the 70 as he is the new Moses bringing in the new exodus for the, uh, the Jewish nation. Just as Moses did, he's bringing deliverance and salvation and a healing to the people that would eventually reach the entire world. And he did it through a group of closely knit folks, the 12 men and the group of women. His view on using women in the ministry turned the religious leaders ideas and opinions on its head. Uh, it was not done that way. So God's view of women in the Bible was quite different than man's view. I think that will be a good place for us to stop tonight. that does it for this episode thank you for taking time to listen make sure to visit us at the website preachershane.com and this is preacher shane saying may the lord bless you keep you and shine his countenance upon you until next time